Good morning, everybody. It's good to see your beautiful smiling faces. If you're not smiling, you ought to be. Uh, look at your neighbor and say, I'm glad to be here this morning. Now, if you're a teacher, look at your neighbor and say, I barely survived. But we made it. Praise the Lamb. By the skin of our teeth, it's summertime. You know, I, I'm so grateful. I've got to make a confession. I just need to be honest with you. I was so looking forward to summertime because I just wanted to lay down somewhere for about the next two months, right? Like, I just want to get under a rock or maybe go out and float around on the water somewhere and just not move for the next two months. And I've been challenged uh, by, by Clay and the church, and, and we've been talking about this summer shred where we're going to read the New Testament in 90 days, and I've been trying to press into that, and, and I had to really fight through myself to, to put away some excuses about all the things that I didn't want to do um, and be obedient to what God was calling us into as we move forward into the summer because really things have been crazy, but the truth is, is that things will always continue to be wild and crazy and if we don't start looking at our priorities we're going to end up in a place that we don't want to be and so really this word today that that I feel like God is he's been working on me over the last little bit and and it's it's really something that that I, I have started to believe in my heart is the most serious thing that I can consider and think about and I want to bring you along with me. And we're going to take a real close evaluation at a, at a part of the life of one of the leaders of the nation of Israel. See, now this was a man that I believe that we can look at his example and we can see the way that he lived and the character of his life and we can see what God is trying to bring out of ourself. And so this is a guy who, he was a man of the presence of God. He believed in being in the presence of God. He was a, a helper. He was a minister to Moses. He was Moses' aide. He was the right-hand man to Moses, so to speak. So when Moses needed something done, this was the guy who would go and do it. When Moses needed some food or a drink or he needed his clothes washed, he would hand it off to this guy, and he would get the job done. And he spent a lot of time with Moses, and he learned a lot about God from Moses. See, when Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would talk to God and he would meet with the presence of God, this is the man who would stand outside of the tent and he would guard it so that nobody could come in unprepared to the presence of the Lord. And see, when, when Moses would finish, he would go in and he would sit in that place and he would be and linger in the presence of God there. He followed Moses up on the Mount Sinai when Moses went up and he received the law and he would meet with God face to face and he saw the fire descend upon the mountain and he was up there watching from a distance as Moses came back down carrying the law written by God into the tablets. See, he was close to Moses and he was close to God and he learned all of these things because Moses discipled him and Moses mentored him and when they came back down the mountain carrying the law he saw the state of the people worshiping the false gods and the, the golden calf and he saw how it hurt Moses and he saw how it hurt God and he was there and he witnessed it firsthand and so I feel like this is a person that we can look at the way 
that he led and the way that he lived and we can apply that to ourselves and we can become better for it and we can walk a little closer with God. So we're going to take a look at a man named Joshua. Now he's a very prominent character in the Old Testament. Like he, he did a lot of incredible things and we're going to take a very small portion of the book of Joshua and we're just going to jump into that together. But we want to really think about the situation and the circumstances that Joshua inherited from Moses and the way that the nation of Israel was walking into the promised land. So Joshua received his authority and leadership from God and from Moses as Moses was about to die and they were about to lead the people across the Jordan into the promised land. Moses says, I'm not going, but God's going and you're going to lead these people. And he places like the mantle of, of leadership and authority over the neck of, of Joshua. And he says, take them in. And what we have to realize is that there was this group of people following God into a place where there was going to be imminent war and fighting to claim the promises of God. Right? So it's not like this, I'm giving you this authority, everything's going great good luck. It was, hey, I'm actually putting you in a position where things are going to be really difficult and you're going to have to lead and follow and listen to God as you walk into the land that he has promised to give us. And so we're going to look at chapter 3 and we're going to read the first couple verses together here. Joshua chapter 3 verse 1 says this, then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. They came to the Jordan he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Let's pray real quick. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for this word. I thank you, God, for your presence. I thank you for the example set before us, God. I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we can receive your word in, that it would do a work in us, God, and that we would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. Help us to truthfully look at our own selves and realize the place that you're calling us into is deeper than the place that we currently are. God, I love you, and I, I ask that you would bless this word in your uh, for your sake and in Jesus' name, amen. So, I feel like there's a lot that we can learn from this. I feel like there's a lot that we can, can look into. There's a lot that we can see out of Joshua and the nation of Israel as they're about to approach the Jordan River. So we're going to start back over in verse 1, and I'm going to walk through some of these scriptures with you, and I'm going to point out some of the things that God has opened up in my heart that, that he's pointing out to me, and I believe that he wants to point these same things out to you. So as soon as we start into verse 1, I'm already upset because it says Joshua rose early, and I'm a little bit like, wait a minute, God, I'm trying to sleep in. I'm trying to spend that summer break. Like, I'm trying to rest a little bit, and here we're met with Joshua, and, and I don't 
I don't want you to think that you can't rest because you definitely can rest. But what I want you to know is that Joshua had the priority of doing the work of the Lord. And sometimes you have to get up and you have to be on the business of God to get things done. Right? So Joshua got up early. He was getting people ready. They were about to go on a journey together. And so Joshua was, was up and about. He was a man that was disciplined in the Lord. And he was getting some things ready. He was getting some work done. And it says, they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. So they go up to the river, and they're setting up camp. There's a whole nation of people, there's a bunch of them, and they're setting up camp here, and they're going to wait there, and they're going to camp for a little bit as everything was being prepared, as the Lord was getting ready to move them over. And I've got a picture of the Jordan here to show you. So, as you can see, the blue line going down the middle of the map, that's the Jordan River um, and these people are going to be crossing from the right side where Shatim is over to the left side. They're going to camp at Gilgal for a little bit. Then they're going to go fight at Jericho. And so they're going to cross somewhere in the middle there just above the Dead Sea, which is at the bottom, and below the city called Adam up near the top of the map. And so there's this whole nation of people. They're about to cross over knowing that when they do, there is a city waiting for them to come and fight to claim these things that God has given them. And I want us to realize that there are some important things to note about the Jordan. See, the Jordan River was a source of life for that entire area geographically. Living water flowed through the Jordan, and it watered all the plants and the crops and everything. People would go to the Jordan, and all throughout Scripture, we see them going into the Jordan, and they would use it to wash themselves. They would purify themselves there. They would clean themselves there. They would go down into the Jordan, and they would receive baptism there. You see, the baptismal site that's marked on the map, scholars believe that the same place where the nation of Israel crossed over into the promised land is the same place that John the baptizer met with Jesus and baptized him in the water. See, it's a significant place. There's a lot of meaning here because when the nation of Israel crosses, God's going to open up the water. But when Jesus was baptized, he opened up the heavens, right? And there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit being taken place here. We see it. Now, not only was the Jordan a place of life and a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's also it's a boundary line. It's a line that is impassable on our own. And it's separating the wilderness from the promised land, right? We see that there is paradise in front of us, but we have to get across this river called the Jordan in order to walk into it. We have a nation that's coming out of bondage and slavery and they're moving their way into salvation and freedom. And they can't cross this on their own. We, we have a, a, a people who have been in the wilderness so long that a generation died and they are escaping death to cross the boundary into life. There's a lot going on at the Jordan. There's a lot of significance in this crossing over from one place into the other. And we're going to look into this a little more together as we go here. Verse 2 says this, that at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and they started to command the people. 
Now, three is an important number scripturally. Three is a divine perfect number. There's a few other perfect numbers, uh, but three is one that usually revolves around the divinity of God. And we see this take place in a, in, in a few different ways. We see that the Godhead is split into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that, that just like Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, Jesus spent three days in the heart of the earth before he was resurrected. We see the number three in creation was the separation from sea and land. Right? We see this in Scripture that three holds significance. And so it's no joke it's no mistake that they camp for three days surrounding the Ark of the Covenant before they decide to make this trip from death into life and slavery to salvation. So they camp for three days and the officers go through camp and they start telling people what God has told them to do. And they say, as soon as, immediate, right? As soon as you see it, when, as soon as your eyes lock onto it, as soon as you notice that this is happening, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that is your God, being carried by the priests, then, at that time, you should set out from your place and follow it. And I feel like this is something that we miss a lot. I feel like sometimes we're so busy in the day-to-day. -day. We're so busy trying to get this done and trying to go here and trying to work on this part of our house and trying to do this thing to make our wife happy because she's usually not. And then we're trying to do this and that. That's a joke. My wife is a lot happy. But we're trying to do all these things. I feel like I've got a list of things that's taller than I am. And I'm trying to get all these things done. And what I need to remember is that when I start to see the presence of God move forward, that is when I should stop whatever I'm doing I should drop it right there, no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing, and I should say, there goes God, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow the presence of God wherever he's going, and I'm going to quit doing what I'm doing so that I can do what God's doing. And so the, 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 na the nation of Israel was commanded to keep watch of where God is going so that they know when it's time for them to start moving. And they're going to follow it. So they waited three days. They know that as soon as the Ark of the Covenant begins to move, they're going to move. And then in verse 4, there comes a warning. And I find this interesting. I find this uh, intriguing that it says there should be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits. Now, 2,000 cubits doesn't make a lot of sense to me, so I've put up um, some metric and imperial units up here for, for some freedom units, right? So... 900 meters, if you've ever ran two laps around the track, you know that 800 meters is a long way, right? So a little over two laps around the track would be around 800. And so he's telling them to stay back about half of a mile, a little over half of a mile. He says, you don't need to come near the presence of God in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you haven't come this way before. You've not passed this way. And so it's not that the nation cannot gather close to the presence of God. It's not that he doesn't want them to be close to him. But what he wants is for them to have intentional distance between God's leadership and their own leadership. See, I tend to try to walk in step with God, even sometimes get in front of God, and I try to lead myself along with God. And what the... Scripture is saying is that he wants God to be so far in front of you that there's no denying who's leading the way. 
Right? God should be so far out there in front of you and you're following right behind him and that he's the only thing that you're looking at in the distance and he wants you to follow in his steps, not try to step along with him. Right? Like God is telling us that we should be obedient to follow him and intentionally place him in front of ourselves. Because I tend to lead myself. I tend to try to get out there, and I'm like, okay, God's probably all right with me going this way. And then the next thing I know, I take one step, and God has turned in a different direction, and I wasn't looking at him. I didn't have my eyes on him, and I don't know when the Spirit is leading me in a different direction because I'm so focused on where my own feet are going. And if I don't put God in front of my eyes so that I'm following him, I'll get confused, and I'll follow myself. So we have to have this separation where God is in front and we are behind because we've not went this way before. We don't know how to go from death into life. We don't know how to walk out of slavery into the salvation of the Lord. We don't know. We've not passed this way before. And it's only through following the presence that we're going to find the way. In verse 5, Joshua goes on to say that you should consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, consecrate is a word that we've talked about uh, a bit this year. Uh, Clay done a whole sermon series over consecration at the beginning of the year. I believe that it's come up time and time again. I believe that this is part of the heart of God is that we would consecrate ourselves because God is trying to do wonders among us. And he will if we would start to consecrate ourselves. And so I've got the definition of consecration here. Consecrate means to declare or make sacred, to set apart to the service of God, or to devote to a purpose in a sincere manner. So I think that we need to linger here for a moment and evaluate our own heart and our own self and take a look and see, have I actually consecrated myself have I looked at myself and looked at God and said okay God I want to be a sacred vessel that you use I want my life to be set apart for your use God I want my ambition the wealth or the lack of wealth that I have I want the car that I drive I want the job that I work I want the church that I go to I want the kids that I'm raising I want the wife that I've married I want every part of my life to belong to you and I want it to be for your use and I, I want it to be a sincere thing of my heart that I'm giving it all to God because the, if God has given it to me the least I can do is give it back to him and so I want to consecrate myself like Joshua told Israel to do I want to come to a place where I mean it that my life belongs to God and he tells the nation to do this, and he says, when you do this, when you consecrate yourself, tomorrow you're going to see some crazy stuff. God is about to do something in your life. He's about to do something for your people. He's about to do something for the nation. But it starts with you consecrating yourself and willingly giving your life over to the control of the Lord. And that's not an easy thing to do because I love me, right? I want, I want to do what me wants to do. Uh, and for me to give that up, it's almost like I need to love God more than I love myself. That's a tough place to be. 
See, now, as we continued to read on, and we skip down to verse 14, the book of Joshua says this. It says, when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. And I want to I elaborate on this. I want to paint a picture for you. I don't know how well you guys do with numbers. But when Israel exited Egypt and they entered into the wilderness, God told Moses to take a census of all the people. And he did. And then as they wandered around the wilderness for a little bit, he led them over to the Jordan. They walked in, and they said, Whoa, man, there's some big bros over there. We're going to have to fight. I don't know that we can do it. We don't really trust God enough to take us in there. And so because of that doubt, because of their lack of faith, God said, Well, a whole generation is going to wander around, and they're going to die out here. And so after that generation dies and the next generation comes up, God says, I want you to count them again. And so in Numbers chapter 26, they take another census of the people, and it's the new generation that's about to inherit the promised land. And so all of these people are sitting on the banks of the Jordan, and they're waiting. And Numbers says that there was 601,000 fighting men, ages 20 and up. Now when we count that, out of all of the tribes, and we say 600,000 fighting men, 20 and up, we don't count any of the men 20 and under, or any of the men who were too old to fight. We don't count any of the women of any age, infant through elder. And so 601,000 seems like a lot. But when you think about the rest of the people, it's easy to estimate at least 2 million Israelites sat on the bank of the Jordan. 2 million people waiting to walk over into the land that was promised to their forefathers. 2 million people sitting there. And I can't hardly wrap my mind around 2,000. Much less multiplicity, just bunches, right? Just like a, a multiplication of, of 2 million people. What would that look like? How much space would it take for them to line up along the riverbank? Two million people sitting here waiting and they're camped around the Ark of the Covenant. What would it take? And so now we see that the Jordan is at flood stage. See, in normal circumstances, the Jordan River is not that ferocious. Like I said earlier, they would go in, they would wash their clothes, they would bathe themselves, they would drink the water, they would, they would uh, take care of anything that they needed to in the water, they would baptize one another in the Jordan. And we see that it's at flood stage, which adds an element of danger and chaos. Because when the, when the flood stages are happening and all the rain is coming down during harvest season, the Jordan starts to overflow its banks and it spreads out across the land. And this is an intentional thing because it waters the land around the river. Right? It waters the land around the river during the, during the rainy season and it overflows. But this is not the time that you want to take your women and your children and your elders and all of your fighting gear and you want to march them into a flooded river because the river is crazy right now. So God is taking his people into the promised land during the harvest season when the way forward is at its most difficult. And it doesn't really make sense to me. I would say let's wait until it's easy going. 
Let's wait until we can just mosey on through. But it says in verse 15, the Jordan is at flood stage. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark, ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. And it piled up in a heap a great distance away at the town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. Now, I've got this picture of the floodplain, and this is an estimate. Uh, there's been a lot of erosion happening, and, and so the river has moved a little bit since the time of, of the nation of Israel crossing over in. But you can see Adam at the top, and you can see the Dead Sea at the bottom, and that blue area would have been an estimation of what the floodplain actually would have looked like during the harvest season. So as it flows down into the valley, it begins to spread out until the river takes over the land. And so we've got two million Israelites standing at the bank of a flooded river that is potentially two miles across. It's a river that is potentially a hundred feet deep in the middle. And God is going to make me take my women and children into the middle of that and cross them over into a land that he has promised for us. And it doesn't really make sense that we would do this during the most difficult time of the year. But this was something that God had a provision for. See, the Bible says that when the priests made their way up, to the river and they're carrying the presence of God right so the ark of the covenant carried the presence of God with the nation wherever they went and it says that as the priests made their way to the edge of the river they had to step in before anything happened see I know that when I walk up into a challenging season when I'm approaching something that God is leading me into I want him to go ahead and part the water before I get there I want to I want to just show up and it's already done you know what I mean? I just want to be part of what's going on, and I'm just trying to make my way across. I want God to do the heavy lifting before I get there, and I just want to reap the reward of what God has for me. See, I don't want to get my shoes wet when I step into the water, but I just want to walk up and it's parted. But the priests who were carrying the presence of God had to step into the water. And once they were in the water... Once they had committed to getting themselves a little wet and dirty, once they were in the difficulty of the river crossing, that was when the presence of God said, Part the way, boys. And the river separated for 20 miles from here to London. It was dry ground, right? But it wasn't until they got their feet dirty. It wasn't until they put action to their beliefs and they carried the presence of God with them into the flooded water that it decided to separate. See, God is calling us into the flooded water so that He can make a way for us when our faith begins to yield to action. Verse 17 says that the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and they stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. There's two things that are incredible right here. One is that a whole nation was united in the presence of God. And I can't even imagine what that would look like for the United States. If an entire nation would begin to unite around the presence of God, what kind of things would happen? 
The second thing I think about is that the priests who were carrying the ark, I don't know if you guys have ever read about the construction of the ark. I know Clay done a, a, a series about the tabernacle a while back, and I just done some rereading recently, but like the ark was a beast. Like that thing was covered in gold. It was made out of wood. It had all kinds of stuff in it. It was a real deal. And these boys were carrying this thing down into the river after it was parted. And it says that they stopped in the middle and they stood there and they held the presence of God in the middle of the river while an entire nation passed by. And it makes me ask myself, how long am I willing to stand in the middle of the river so that it will stay parted for somebody else to make it to the other side? How long am I willing to stand and hold the burden of the presence of God so that somebody else has the opportunity to walk past me and make it to the other side first? Right? How long am I willing to stand there shouldering the weight of responsibility that God places on His people? And how long does it take for two million to cross the river? See, we come in, <laughs> we come to church, and like we're ready for it to be over with, and we're ready to go on and do something else. I, I have a hard time imagining that any of us would be willing to stand in the bottom of a riverbed holding the presence of God while two million people walks by because we've got stuff to do, we're impatient, we got things going on. And these men stood there holding the weight of the presence of God while a nation passed by. And it makes me ask myself, how long would I stand so that other people can walk by? See, they entered into the land united in the presence of God. They entered into the promised land, and they were under the authority and the leadership and the guidance of God and of Joshua. And they made it over, and they knew that once they cleared that riverbank and the water started flowing again, that the next step of their journey involved fighting and maybe even dying. And they walked over knowing that God had a plan and God had a purpose. And they were also knowing and willing to give what they had for it. See, they were willing to fight to claim the things that God had set apart for them. They were willing to fight for their families they were willing to fight for a home that they had never had. They grew up completely in the wilderness living in a tent, and they were about to inherit homes. Yeah. See, they were wanderers, but now they're going to be a settled people in the presence of God. And they knew they were going to fight, but later on the Bible says that when they seen them coming, when the enemy saw the nation of Israel approaching, that their hearts melted with fear because they saw the way that they walked with the presence of God. Yeah. Like, they didn't know that. A nation going to fight war has no clue that the enemy is shaking in their boots because you're walking in the presence of God. But the Word tells us that when we approach these battles with God alongside of us, when we put Him in front of, him, in front of us and we follow Him into the battle, that when God makes a way, the enemy is so afraid that He melts before us. And that doesn't mean we don't have to fight. That doesn't mean that we don't have to step into the water, but that means that we've already received the victory. We're just there to grab a hold of it. We just got to go in and take it. We still got to fight for it, but it's assuredly ours. 
So, the enemy's terrified. And I imagine that the nation of Israel was probably a little scared too because they're in some new territory. But when I look at everything that they went through, I see some priorities. I see some characteristics of these people. I see characteristics of God. I see characteristics of Joshua who was being used by God. And I can't help but imagine that if we were to apply some of these things to our own life, how much better would things be? And so, out of these people of the presence of God, out of this nation, what do we see? Well, for one thing, we see endurance and perseverance. I see a nation of people who were willing to endure the wilderness, who were willing to endure a battle, who were willing to stand in the bottom of a riverbed, as they walk over to claim the promises that God has for them. And so when I think about myself, I think about things breaking down and messing up, and I order it, and it's here in two days on Amazon, right? I ain't fixing stuff. I just ain't. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I can have something to replace it, so why would I persevere with something that's a little messed up, right? I don't have that perseverance and endurance. When I teach my classes and somebody doesn't understand something, they shut down and they say, I don't get it, I don't understand it, and they don't persevere into learning what there is to learn. See, we don't have endurance and perseverance as a people right now, and God wants us to. He wants us to walk into that with Him and grow ourselves in our endurance and our perseverance. He wants us to have self-discipline. See, Joshua he woke up early. The people, they waited on God. You know how hard it is to wait? Sometimes it can be the most difficult thing in the world, but this was a people that waited for God to move. They had things ready when it was time to move. They were self-disciplined. They knew where they were going and what was going to happen, and they were willing to set their self to the side in self-discipline and say, these are the things that I would like to do, the things that I want to do, the things that I enjoy. But first and foremost... I'm going to do the things that God wants me to do, the things that God enjoys, and the things that God is leading me into. And then after that, maybe I'll have time to do some me stuff. But first and foremost, I'm going to be disciplined to do the God thing. I'm going to be in the presence of God first and be in myself later. See, next they spent time and they rested in the presence. It said that before they crossed the Jordan, they spent three days at camp. Three was that significant number that I was talking about earlier. They sat huddled around the presence of God, and they waited for three days. And it seems unimaginable that anybody in this room would take three days out of their schedule, and they would go be alone with God for three days. That we would call in to work, that we would get somebody to watch our kids, that we would say, to our spouse that we've got some presence time that we're about to go take part of and that we would go out and we would camp somewhere next to the river of life and we would spend time in the presence of God before we enter into the next season of difficulty and challenge. See, it's hard to imagine that we would give up three days to be in the presence of God to be led and fed by the presence of God. But it shouldn't be. That shouldn't be such a hard thing. But it seems like life demands so much that the world starts to push God out of the way. And the next thing you know, you're actually not being a follower, not being led by God, but instead you're being led by the world and we're not spending any time in the presence. See, they were a people of obedience 
to God's leadership and to the Word. I know that Joshua was instructed to study the Word, to have the Word spoken over him, to follow the law of Moses. See, Joshua, I know that he was willing to listen to what God told him to do, and then he would start to put that in place all throughout his life. He was willing to put his faith into action and obey. Now, the thing about obedience is, is that sometimes... I don't have to know that you're right to do what you tell me to do. I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to know that the thing that you're telling me is the thing that I need to do, but what I have to have is trust that you know what you're talking about. I don't have to know anything about it to obey what you're telling me to do. I just need to know who's telling me to do it. And they obeyed God because they trusted the things that God said. See, next was spiritual discipline. These were people who fasted and they prayed and they studied the word and they listened as other people spoke the word over them. The, the, the nation of Israel was a people who memorized the scripture. Like they, they would learn the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah that Moses wrote. They would memorize those things. They would learn them. They would study them all throughout their youth. They were a people of spiritual discipline. And spiritual discipline really starts coming in handy when it's inconvenient to do anything spiritual. When I'm tired and I don't want to read, or when I need to wake up early but the bed feels so good, that's when spiritual discipline comes into play, and I get up and I pray, and I get up and I read, or I do it before I go to bed, or my son is a little bit tired and he's trying to go to sleep, but I say, listen, son, let me pray over you first. And I have a little bit of spiritual discipline in the inconvenience of real life. Right? It brings me into a place where I spend more time in the presence of God because I have discipline to do things when they're not convenient to do so. And we need to be a people of spiritual discipline if we want to be a people being led by the presence of God. They had faith. They were walking into a flooded place that was dangerous that was risky. They were about to risk everything that they had accumulated, everything that they had. They were going to put their family on the line, and they were walking toward a thing that seemed impassable. And they had faith that God was going to make a way and that provision would come. Now, they didn't know how God was going to do it, but they knew God was, right? They had faith, and I think that as a people... We struggle with our faith so much that it's hard for God to do anything because we don't believe anything, right? Like I feel like in like I was reading the book of Mark just yesterday and, and Jesus was talking to some people who were asking for, for healing and for deliverance of things and, and, and Jesus says, do you believe it? And the man says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Like sometimes we can be in a place where we know that God can do it, but there's like this struggle with our faith, and it's okay to struggle. But we should be praying into it to say, God, listen, I believe that you can do anything, but I need you to help my faith. I need you to grow this faith. I need this to be the fruit in my life that I have faithfulness to you. Because there was a nation that had faithfulness to God. And then lastly, I believe that the people of the presence care about the future generations. I believe that there is a place in the future for faith. 
And you see, as we move down into chapter 4 of Joshua, he brings some guys around him. And it says, Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. See, God had told him to have 12 men ready to do something. So he had went out, and there's 12 tribes of Israel. He had picked one of each. Now, I like to think that he picked some absolute bruisers, okay? Some big old boys like Jesse down there. Jesse would be one of my team. So, uh, yeah, he'd be A-team, Jesse. Right? He calls these men together, and he says, Jesse, Jeremy, come over here for a second, and he gathers them in. Right, and he huddles up with them, and he gets them close, and they got their heads together, and he says, boys, I got something important that you're about to take out and you're about to do. I got something important that the future depends on it, and it's something that only you can do right here, right now. And he gathers those men together, and he, and he starts to explain the importance of the situation that's going on. And he says, listen, I want you to go over before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, in the middle of the Jordan, and he sends those boys down into the river again. See, they'd already crossed over, but he sends them back into the place where the presence was when they came through the river. He sends them back into the place that they had been delivered from, back into the place where they remember the presence being, and he sends them back into the, the river. And, and then in verse, verse 5, he says this, Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of Israel. He says, I want you to go down in there. I want you to remember where God just brought you from. I want you to go back to where the presence was standing, right in front of the priest. I want you to gather in as close as you can to the presence of God, and I want you to pick up the biggest rock that you can put on your shoulder. I want you to pick up the biggest stone that you can maneuver with your own power, and I want you to carry that boy back out of there. I want you to pick up the biggest stone that you can find from the presence of God, and I want you to carry it back out and take it to camp with you. And then he says this, In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? You can tell them the things that God has done. You can tell your family what the presence of God did in your life. When your neighbors and your friends, and your co-workers, and your grandchildren ask you what these stones mean. Why do you got this big old river stone laying out here in the yard? You can say that there was a time in the middle of a river that the presence of God parted the water so that I could come through to the other side. See, I know as a father... This speaks to me in such a way that it hurts me almost. Because I've got two sons at home. And I want them to look at me and I want them to say, Dad, why do you got that stone? And I want to tell them the things that God has done for me. I want to tell them the things I've experienced in the presence of God. And they say, Dad, why do you have those stones stacked up as a memorial? Why are you carrying these stones? Why do you read your Bible, Dad? Why do you pray like that, Dad? And I can tell them. They can look at their mom and say, Mom, why do you listen to the worship music? Why do you go to church? Why do you believe that God is even real? And I can take them back to that stone and I can say, this was a time that I was in the presence of God and something incredible happened. Right? 
Like I can, I can look at my coworkers and my friends, I can look at my neighbors, and when they ask me, Matt, time and time again you've prayed for this and you've prayed for that, and either it happened or it didn't, and it doesn't matter, like why do you continue to persevere in your prayer? When there's a chance that nothing's going to happen. And I can take them back into the middle of the river, and I can say that I stood in the presence of God, and I had no worth of my own. I was unforgivable to myself, that I was in the darkest place that I had ever been. And when my feet got into the water, the Lord made a way where there was no way. That when I was in death and sin and slavery, that it was the presence of God that led me forward into a place that I had never been. And salvation came upon me. That when I couldn't love myself and I had no value of my own, that God sent His Son so that I could be washed in His blood and clothed in His righteousness. That a life would be given to me that I would gladly give it back. And when my kids say, Dad, what are those stones? I can say, there's a God that made me, that loves me so much. And that he's brought me through every difficult season in my life. And there's nothing I want more than to spend more time in his presence and to be closer to where he is. Now, I don't know where in the world you are today. I don't know what you believe. I don't know what you feel in your heart right now. But I know this, that the Spirit of God is calling me into a place where I walk into the water and I get my feet a little wet. And if you can feel God pulling on you today, this is the day, this is the hour, this is the time that we say, God, you're going to be in front from now on. I'm going to start following you wherever you go. That I trust that your way is higher than my own. So here in just a minute, the band's going to play and we're going to open up this altar. And if you want to come up here and you want to take the step into the river, it's the most difficult first step you'll ever take because it's scary to walk into the flooded waters. But God is saying, would you come in deeper with me and let me make a way? You've not been this way before. Quit trying to swim in the flooded waters when I'm trying to make a road for you. We do it on our own. And God wants to do it for us. He just wants us to step into the water and walk in with Him. So if you need to come and pray this morning, this is the place to do it. If you want to take the next step with God, this is the place to do it. If you want to spend more time in the presence, now is the hour to make it happen. So let's bow our heads and we'll pray together. Father God, this is about you. That in the place of our darkest despair, God, that the present, God, your presence goes before us. That you want us to be in the middle of it with you. God, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive your spirit. That you would help our unbelief, God. That you would put us in a place where we would place you first. That all of the things that you've given to us, God, let us lay them back down and receive the life that you have for us. Lord, let your spirit move in such a way that we are forever transformed by it. Draw us in deeper, God. 
that we would be willing to obey and follow after you and that your presence would be before our eyes. God, I love you and I thank you for the things that you've done for us and I, help, I hope that you will help us to carry these stones out so that we can show them to our family, we can show them to our children, we can show them to our friends and co-workers and we can say, look at this stone that I gathered while I was in the presence of God. Let me tell you what it means to me. God, begin to do a new thing in our life today. Taking us to a place that we have not been before. I ask that you would do this for your sake and in the name of Jesus. Amen.